Bell Hummel, the story of Eddie Hummel. Episode 1, Bell Hummel, the Trickster. In the early 1920s, one of the biggest football clubs in the Netherlands was, as it is today, AFC Ajax of Amsterdam. And in September of 1922, Ajax introduced an exciting new player, a 20-year-old named Eddie Hummel, plucked from a rival Amsterdam team to serve as Ajax's new right winger. Hummel was tall, handsome, supremely skilled, and fast as lightning. He was also Jewish. In fact, Hummel was the first Jewish player for Ajax, which helps to explain why he became such an instant fan favorite. In 1922, Amsterdam was home to more than 75,000 Jews. That number would nearly double over the next decade and a half, as thousands of Jewish refugees flooded into the city after fleeing persecution in Germany, Austria, and further east. Most ended up in the Jewish quarter, in the capital city's central southeast. It's not surprising that the Jews of Amsterdam had developed such a great love for Ajax. The club stadium, known as the Wooden Stadium, was easily accessible from the Jewish quarter, whose residents demonstrated a great appetite for the game. The fact that Ajax played on Sundays and not on the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday, surely helped. Historian Susan Smith writes that before the war, Ajax had already gained a reputation as a Jewish club due to its overwhelmingly Jewish fan base. In fact, Ajax was often disparaged by fans of other teams as the Noses Club. But Ajax has never officially been a Jewish club. It was created in 1900 by a handful of Dutch businessmen, all Gentiles, who wrote out the club charter in a cafe on Kalverstraat. In its first few years, Ajax was a small-time affair, playing matches on an unimproved field in Amsterdam North in front of just a few dozen friends and curious onlookers. There were no permanent facilities, just a pair of wooden goals without nets and touchlines drawn in chalk. When city planners began building houses on the spot in 1906, Ajax relocated to a patch of land in the Vatagrafsmeer district. There was still no permanent seating, and players dressed for matches in a nearby pub. The new place had no official name. But football had already begun its transition from obscure pastime to the country's most popular spectator sport. The number of fans at Ajax Games grew steadily each year, so the first grandstands were built in 1911. When more were added in 1916, the wooden stadium had a capacity of more than 10,000 and many, if not most, of its most loyal fans were from the city's rapidly expanding Jewish quarter. My name is Menno Pot. I'm a writer and a journalist based in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. I I really clearly remember pretty much the moment that I became an Ajax fan. This was in 1983. I, I come from a family where we didn't really watch football at all. And I was definitely not raised an Ajax fan. It was not that my father was an Ajax fan or anything like that. But I remember watching them, seeing them on the TV. And the Ajax players, they seemed a little bit younger. They had swagger. They seemed like not, not your neighbor, but your boy next door or your cousin, you know, the ones that have a motorcycle and uh, are cool. That's what it felt like to me when I was only eight years old. And I... 
instinctively connected to that. I liked it, loved it from the start, and I just wanted to be a part of that. Ajax means a lot to the city of Amsterdam. On, on match days, especially European match days, there is no escape. I mean, you can, uh, you, you'll see the club colors everywhere. Pretty much everybody in the city supports Ajax, and uh, it's, it's one of the things that Amsterdamers are proud of, the fact that we have an internationally renowned football club. The club has been there for uh, 123 years, so it's become a very, very important part of Amsterdam culture. In his book, Ajax, the Dutch, the War, Simon Cooper recounts his conversation with an 87-year-old Ajax fan named Hans Rice, whose father took him to his first Ajax match when he was nine years old. On a warm spring day in 1921, father and son boarded a steam train in Maiden, bound for Vadegrafsmeer and for Ajax. It departed every 30 minutes and took half an hour to reach its destination. On game days, it was packed to overflowing with Jewish Ajax fans. The moment the train puffed into the station, hundreds of men and boys would rush it. Those at the head of the line, and those quick or pushy enough, could find a seat. Others stood in the aisles, packed in like sardines. The rest, those who couldn't get inside the train, hopped up onto wooden rails attached to the outside and clung to the frames of open windows. The train moved fast, and sometimes people fell off. The locals called it the Gusha Murdenar, the Grumpy Killer. Once it reached its destination, the passengers walked quickly to the gates of the wooden stadium, where they paid ten cents for a ticket. Once inside, they cheered with gusto for their favorite players. And above all, the Jews of Amsterdam loved Eddie Hommel. A group of Hommel fans always gathered along the touchline where Eddie played as a right winger. At halftime, they walked around to the opposite side to continue cheering on their hero. Hamlin was known for making long, sweeping runs with the ball at his feet, which drove his fans mad with excitement. He was so skillful and devious that defenders often ended up on their backsides. Writing for Het Parul in 2000, the journalist Arthur de Boer interviewed the late Ajax archivist Wim Schovart, who as a young boy had seen Hamel play and who described him as an extraordinarily elegant right-winger, the Van Schip type, superb crosses, but not too many goals. He also spoke to Guy Van Dyck, himself a star player for Ajax in the 1940s and 50s, who used to go to Ajax matches specifically to watch Eddie Hommel play. I didn't even play for Ajax yet at the time, and Hommel was already a veteran, but he was a wonderful footballer, an icon. And what I like most about him, he was always such a gentleman. He never kicked opponents or things like that. He was my role model. I never kicked anyone myself. I wanted to be like Eddie Hommel. Eddie's fans had quickly adopted his schoolyard nickname, Bell Hommel, and cheered him on throughout the match. They heckled and laughed at the poor defenders trying to mark him. One former teammate remembered an incident where a frustrated opponent, playing for the rival club Sparta, charged in at full speed and clattered Eddie with a crunching tackle, just a few feet from the touchline. Several of Eddie's fans stepped onto the pitch and helped their hero to his feet, brushing off his uniform with their hands and shoving the Sparta player, calling him a schmendrick and a shtickdrek. Eddie put a protective arm around his opponent and ushered him away to safety. The crowd cheered, and order was restored. Such was the respect the young Eddie Hommel enjoyed with his fans. 
Ajax fans tend to know a little bit about the club's history when it comes to the, the, the football and everything before the late 1960s is, is a bit of a blur. It's not only that the people don't know, but there's no, there's no, there's not really a, a, a plaque or a statue or anything like that. There's no memorial or whatever. So it really is, um, it's, it's, it really, it really is dark ages to the average Ajax fan. Sometimes history uh, can finally be told properly when everybody's gone. Everybody who was there during the Second World War is now dead. It's become ancient history. And um, that allows this generation of Ajax fans to finally look at that piece of history from their own perspective. And you can look back in a sort of a scientific way. Now is maybe the time to tell the story like it really was. Eddie's father, Moses Hamel, had been born in 1876 in the village of Vesp, not far from Amsterdam. As a young man, Moses had worked as a diamond polisher. At the age of 26, he married Evesha Beck, and just one day after their wedding, the newlyweds traveled by steamship to New York City, where they stayed with Moses' sister in a second-floor walk-up on East 83rd Street on Manhattan's Upper East Side in a neighborhood known as Yorkville. It wasn't just a brief honeymoon. The young couple stayed in New York City for almost two years. Yorkville was a lively place working class and a true melting pot, with Irish and English immigrants living alongside Jews from Russia, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, and the Netherlands. The young couple's first child, Edward Hommel, was born in Yorkville on the 21st of October, 1902. They called him Eddie. Their child was American, with a birth certificate issued by the state of New York. But just seven months later, in May of 1903, and for reasons we can only guess at, the Hamels moved back to the Netherlands for good. Moses and Esha rented a small apartment in Amsterdam's Zandam neighborhood. Over the next five years, the Hamel family added three daughters, Hendrika, Estella, and Selina. So they moved to a larger flat on Pretoriastraat in the fashionably middle-class Transvaal district, where they stayed for more than a decade. The family's eldest child and only son, Eddie, wasn't much of a student. He had a good attendance record at school, but got poor grades and was often disciplined for talking out in class. But as bad as he was in the classroom, he must have been a prodigy on the playground. In the only surviving school photo, Eddie towers above his classmates. The neighborhood boys gave him the nickname Bellhommel, a play on his last name, and Dutch slang for trickster or troublemaker. When he was just 14, Eddie joined the youth football team of Wilhelmina Voorhees, or WV, a well-established sporting club in the Vatergraafsmeer district. Eddie was the youngest ever to play for the club's youth team, and he played a lot, featuring in 21 games in his two years at WV. In 1918, not long after he turned 16, Eddie was invited to join AFC, the Amsterdamish Football Club, a much larger and more prestigious club than WV, though still much smaller than its neighbor Ajax. AFC trained on a polder next to the wooden stadium, the home of Ajax. The opportunity to train and play in the shadow of Ajax must have been intoxicating. It was hardly possible to grow up Jewish in Amsterdam and not become a fan of Ajax. 
And although AFC was not quite Ajax, it was literally as close as you could get. At 17, Eddie moved from the youth squad to AFC's first team, settling in at right wing, where he played for three seasons. The fact that Eddie played for the full 90 minutes in all of those games was not remarkable. In the early years of organized football, substitutions only occurred when injury prevented a player from continuing. There was no explicit rule forbidding tactical substitutions, it just wasn't done. It was considered unsporting. Simon Cooper writes that at the end of an AFC training session, the players were amusing themselves by kicking balls against the Ajax dressing room. One ball struck a pane of glass and shattered it. Eddie ran over to retrieve the ball, only to find himself caught in the midst of the Ajax groundskeepers, who threw him into a nearby drainage ditch. This was young Eddie Hommel's introduction to the club where he would soon spend nearly a decade as a star player, becoming its first Jewish player and the first American to play for any major football team in Europe. So how did Eddie Hommel become an Ajax player? The most likely answer is that Jack Reynolds spotted the young AFC winger while attending one of the smaller club's home games, played right next to the Ajax training ground. Like every other top club at the time, Ajax had an English coach. Football in England was already a professional sport, and English coaches were paid a salary. This led to rapid advances in tactics and methods, which meant the English coaches were miles ahead of their amateur counterparts. Ajax had hired their own English coach, Jack Reynolds from Manchester, in 1915, and at great expense by the standards of the day. It took time but eventually, Reynolds was able to transform Ajax into a modern football club. He introduced more frequent and demanding technical training, implemented more evolved formations, and enforced rules on proper diet and against too much drinking. Before Reynolds, the first team practices at Ajax had mostly consisted of a scrimmage, followed by drinks at the bar. Jack Reynolds is probably the single most important man in the history of the club. This was a very, very influential man, and everybody who, who worked with him was influenced by him. And this man created basically everything that Ajax stands for. The whole Ajax style, the focus on attacking football, the focus on entertainment, on skill, uh, keeping the ball low, short passing, circulation football, passing the ball around, all that kind of thing. The whole Ajax tradition and everything that Ajax stands for started with this man. He lifted the whole game to a completely new level. In addition to his remarkable speed and skills, Eddie had something any coach would desire. He was an excellent crosser of the ball. Hummel made his Ajax debut on September 8, 1922, in an away game at Blau Witt, in a match that Ajax won 0-2. Eddie played in every league match in 1922, and in all but one friendly, 29 out of 30 games. Despite his easygoing personal style, Eddie proved himself to be a driven, hard-working player. From the moment he joined Ajax, he thrived under Jack Reynolds' demanding training sessions. And the English coach must have praised Hamill as an example for the other players. This may not have sat too well with the rest of the squad. Eddie's veteran teammate, Joop Pelzer, had been the boss of the Ajax midfield for nearly a decade and regularly served as the team's captain. But Pelzer was nearing the end of his career by the time Eddie Hommel joined Ajax, 
and it's not hard to imagine how Pelzer might have resented this young and handsome newcomer who had become such an instant fan favorite. Pelzer was part of a proud footballing family. His brothers Adrian, Jan, and Fons had also played for Ajax. Yup was also a member of the club's board of directors, serving as either commissioner or secretary at times, all while playing as the team captain. He had been instrumental in the hiring of Jack Reynolds and had helped to elevate Ajax from a club of undistinguished amateurs to a first-class competitive side. By every measure, Pelser was a big shot at Ajax. So it's understandable that he might have bristled at this new kid Hummel's stardom and golden boy reputation. But Pelser's animosity toward Eddie went beyond what might be called reasonable. It was extreme and relentless. He was overheard more than once referring to Hamel as our top nose, a disparaging allusion to Eddie's Jewishness. Pelzer stepped down as an Ajax player at the end of the 1924 season. And Eddie may have assumed, wrongly as it turned out, that his troubles with the former captain were over for good. At the time, Eddie Hamel was at the height of his talents as an Ajax player. In 1925, the club's 25-year commemorative book described, quote, an arrow-fast Hummel, who repeatedly brought the Ajax supporters into ecstasy by clever play on the wing. But Hummel's personal success was never quite enough to help Ajax win the overall league championship. In its 131-year history, Ajax has won the overall Dutch title and unsurpassed 36 times, a dozen more than next-best PSV. Yet the Amsterdammers didn't win it once during Eddie's playing career. There's just a huge gap from 1919 to 1930 in their otherwise unending decades of success. But despite the lack of overall championships, Hommel spent the 1920s as the most popular player for the capital city's biggest club. Thousands of Jewish fans flocked every week to the Wooden Stadium to see their hero in action. Hummel's success caught the eye of the Dutch national coach Bob Glendening, who added Eddie to the Netherlands team for a few friendlies. It's tempting to imagine Hummel, a top player in the host city's top club team, playing in Dutch colors in the 1928 Olympics in the beautiful new Olympic Stadium. But it just wasn't possible, because Hummel wasn't Dutch. His birth certificate was issued by the state of New York. And although it's true that he'd lived his entire life in Amsterdam and spoke only Dutch, Eddie was, in fact, American, and without a Dutch birth certificate, he was simply ineligible to play for the Netherlands in any official competition, including the Olympics. But Eddie was eligible to play for his home country, the United States, who were among the 16 countries to compete in football in the Amsterdam Olympics. Had Eddie been in possession of his own birth certificate, he would have been eligible to play for the U.S., in the world's biggest sporting event being held in his own hometown. It's unlikely that Hamel was known to the U.S. coach, George Burford, a fitness coordinator for the Pennsylvania Railroad, and it's too bad. Hamel might have been a useful addition to a meager U.S. team that ended up getting thrashed 11-2 in their one and only game against the eventual runners-up, Argentina. And if Eddie had established himself in that American team, he may very well have gone on to play for the U.S. in the first-ever FIFA World Cup, held in football-mad Uruguay just two years later in 1930. And in order to travel to that tournament, Eddie would have been issued a passport, something that could have saved his life 
many years later. Bill Hamel is written and presented by Jim McGow and is produced and edited by Nigel Coutinho. Original music written and performed by Paul Chavez. Artwork by Fred Davis. Additional voices by Travis Friedrich. This week's episode featured additional commentary by Menno Pott. To see photographs and documents relevant to this story, visit our website at bellhommelpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram via the links on our website. Next time on Bell Hummel. Player becomes coach.